Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. Prior to the coronavirus pandemic, contract research organizations had been gradually tinkering with and implementing remote technology. Little did they know, this experimentation would be their saving grace. Joining me now is Will Rowe, the president and CEO of Nutrisource, a global CRO based in Ontario, as well as Josh Baisley, vice president of clinical design and delivery. Josh and Will, welcome to the NutriCast. That's great to be here. Thank you so much, Danielle, for uh, having us on your show today. So, Will, talk to me about Nutrisource. Let's start off with some background information. What is Nutrisource and its role in the supplement industry for those who may not know? Absolutely. So uh, Nutrisource Pharmaceutical and Nutraceutical Services, Inc., which is our official name, but we go by uh, Nutrisource, is a contract research organization that's involved in clinical trials and studies, regulatory and strategic consulting, as well as testing-based and some supply chain verification certification programs in certain ingredient categories in the nutritional industry. And what that all comes down to now that we're in our 20th year of business is we help the global health products industry make claims and statements from a science, evidence, data-driven perspective with novelty, but also with regulatory either approval, authorization, or compliance. So our customers will show up and say, hey, we're either repositioning a current product or we're launching a new product. And sometimes for them, product can be at different levels of the supply chain. Not all of it is consumer branded product, but the key thing is they want to say something that's novel, maybe protected by intellectual property, but they want to say it in certain countries or regions to a certain consumer market population uh, around a certain area of health. And those claims or position statements can be tied to marketing, IP, structure, function claims, nutrient content claims, or it can be an outright efficacy or safety claim, but they want to be on side with regulators. So as aggressive as possible, but still on side so that they can uniquely position themselves to their customers, whether that's upstream in the supply chain or as a brand to the consumer on pack. And so we facilitate all of that through our staff of approximately 150 We are a Canadian-based company in Guelph, Ontario, which is about an hour west of Toronto. However, our view is truly global, and the majority of our work focuses actually on the U.S. market with EU and not too distant second. And we've done work in certain key countries in Asia, as well as in South America. And those latter two regions have really come on strong in the last few years. So the majority of our clientele comes from outside of Canada, interestingly, and the Canadian market is typically an afterthought for them. It's usually bolted on or it's the, in terms of the group of priority markets or countries, it's usually the, the second group. But from our standpoint, we want to facilitate commercialization and we want to understand their objectives commercially. So we're not just, hey, here's your study report or here are your certification and test results. Have a nice day. We want to understand the strategy. We want to start with the end in mind and help our clients launch their product successfully or move it along the commercialization trajectory successfully. You have to be 
basically an expert on all the regulations and different things going on within the industry. And I know how complicated it is in the United States. How do you stay on top of that? That's a great question. And it's a it's an ongoing effort. It's a labor of love, but we both allow and encourage all of our staff to get heavily involved with the many trade organizations and media outlets that we uh, otherwise participate in so that uh, they get on committees, they get on uh, news feeds, they get on regulatory feeds, they get the recall and the warning letter statements and feeds from government ministries, including, of course, FDA, Health Canada, EFSA, and others. And that, in totality and aggregate, helps us stay in the know and stay on top of the hot-button issues in the various categories that we work. So we have a lot of breadth and depth. We're not just siloed to just probiotics or just marine oils or just botanicals. We have a really good mix. And part of that is we're sort of set up as an academic unit in how we've designed our staff complement. These 150 mostly scientists, medical doctors, PhDs and master's level are from a really nice cross-section, pharma, nutra, food science, toxicology, molecular biology and genetics, microbiology, chemistry, of course, and that eclectic mix and that diversity in backgrounds has really helped position ourselves to be able to take on multiple different types of projects and programs across multiple product categories across multiple jurisdictions. And one thing you had to take on, one thing we all had to take on was the pandemic. Uh, From what I heard, Nutrisource didn't skip a beat when the pandemic hit. What went on behind the scenes? So overall, when COVID came about, we actually saw signals from Asia in particular, from our Asian clientele, as early as late January 2020, that this wasn't some necessarily regional thing. It was likely going to go global and have uh, massive ramifications for society. And to that end, fortunately, we're positioned that uh, roughly a third of our staff already worked remotely. So the adjustments for them were not as significant or material as they are or were for other members. And the other key thing is because we are in the research field, we were deemed an essential business. So our clinical studies that were underway uh, could continue. One of the other things we were heavily involved with that regulators were already warming up to prior to COVID were decentralized studies or remote studies, some people like to call them. And in that respect, we'd already successfully done and delivered a couple of these prior to COVID even being a thing. And so from there, uh, we'd had that direct experience and that has greatly assisted us with delivering studies either through our site network, through our own clinic site at headquarters in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, or through decentralized modeling or some hybrid thereof. I mean, a lot of companies were, you know, concerned that they would have to close up shop and things. So did anything have to pause? Well, I think the the main pause were the adjustments that our sponsors had to make because they had to rethink some of their studies and the timing. There was obviously a lot of concern about delivery and execution operationally for the study, for those studies that required seeing patients in person. And we moved quickly. We pivoted fast to ensure that Specific measures were put in place so that we could still see individual patients and participants in these studies, 
without compromising quality. But the big pause for us was Q2 2020, when some of our larger projects went on pause. The good news for us was that our sponsors still wanted to do the work. So projects were delayed or deferred, but we didn't have a single project canceled. And we ensured our sponsors that we could deliver for them, which we ultimately did and continue to during the pandemic now. That's pretty remarkable. Was your budget impacted at all? Or did you actually save money by doing a lot of these remote studies? Well, one of the uh, misconceptions is that remote studies are less expensive. But to run them to the appropriate levels of ICH or GCP, or to run them to the right level of quality, you still need the oversight, the management, the patient engagement. Certain line items shift because you don't have a, a physical clinic, so the clinic costs are less. But then the patient management, instead of the clinic managing the individual participant, our staff are engaged in managing the participant in the study. So there is a bit of a misconception that because it's remote, it's less expensive. What happens is the budget looks different and shifts around. But it's, in some cases, it's actually been more expensive to run in a decentralized way because uh, when you're shipping, again, it's all protocol dependent, but if you're shipping individual kits out to all these different places, collecting them back in and going out to the labs, there are other costs that actually go up in a decentralized model. Ah, okay. And probably that technology, you probably have to purchase some additional technology to, to use when conducting these remote studies. Yes. And what we are seeing is a, is a trend in computer software apps and interfaces around patient management and clinical studies. We've engaged and employed some of those successfully to tie back into our overall patient management and, and database, electronic data capture systems. All right. And Josh, I'll, I'll bring you on here. Talk to me about that process and what it was like adapting and even some of the participants, how did they adapt to doing remote studies? Yeah. So for us operationally on the clinical side, we have two distinct units. So there's the clinical trial management group, and then there's the clinical trial site. So on the clinical trial management group, we had several studies ongoing, both here locally at our site, as well as across North America. So myself and a small core team from the project management side got together prioritize the projects, prioritize where we were at within those projects to look at where the risks were and how we were going to address the uh, nuances with this pandemic. So, of course, we were had concerns at the time about supply chains, about uh, crossing the border with supplies, getting those out to the site. So that was priority number one to get things moving and get things across the border, because at least then we could deal with it from there. Another area of concern, of course, was the changing regulations. Uh, and that's something that I personally took on to help the team out. So I started to look at all the regulatory agencies around the globe. It started with the UK releasing some guidance on March 12th, followed by the FDA on the 16th, 2020. And then it continued throughout different uh, government agencies. And those organizations across the world, the regulatory agencies, they continue to put out updates and different organizations were giving different tidbits of information. So it could, you could really start to see where things were heading and get ahead of that. Some major changes that needed to occur was in our database and data management systems for our clinical trials. FDA and others were looking for more information to be collected. And then on the back end of our clinical study reports, 
new reporting measures, different analyses were needing to be done in case you had subjects that contracted COVID during the study. So we started to implement all of those processes internally to stay ahead of what was going to be needed from regulators downstream. That sounds overwhelming. We have a good sized team here, so it wasn't actually that bad. (laughs) That's good to hear. That's good to hear. So you've got all these things in place. And then, I mean, it's been about a year now. Just looking back, how much has changed since then? On the trial management side, I would say there's more of a hybrid approach to some of our studies now, where if we can do some things that are more decentralized, then we put those measures into the studies. In other cases, it's business usual. We do look at geographically where sites are located, what's going on with regards to pandemic and outbreak, where are the risks, um, and try and manage those risks. And then in other cases, we've gone fully decentralized for some of our studies. As Will said, the decentralized studies, of course, have their own nuances and how you have to structure databases, how you have to manage subjects. And again, there's a lot of uh, transportation logistics to figure out if you are shipping kits or samples around as well. And I think we're going to see that stay as well. To some degree, there will be studies that will be operating as they normally were. Others will go to that hybrid model and others will go decentralized. On the site side here in Guelph, we had a lot of uh, changes here to deal with subjects at our site level. Patient safety, obviously, is number one. So we had to take a look at our spacing, comply with the local requirements with respect to capacity, spacing. We expanded our facility actually during COVID. We're up to 17,000 square feet now for our clinic unit. And that facilitated us to be able to continue our studies on with social distancing. We also bought some barriers to make more private areas and separate uh, the patients as well as the employees, more PPE. We also do uh, cleaning protocols as well as whole room cleaning. And then in one of our studies, because it requires subjects coming in every single day. So we've actually been operating for several months now in that capacity. We do rapid testing, both of our employees and of these subjects. And one of the difficulties in these studies is that some of these symptoms that you see with COVID could be related to taking product. Um, So how do you differentiate that is a, a challenge. So that's why we employed the rapid testing so that we could rule out COVID. And also if somebody did have COVID, we can take action then to again, minimize impact across the rest of the study. Wow, you guys have taken so many steps um, to keep people safe and to kind of keep moving on. Uh, Once everybody or or once people start getting vaccinated, it it sounds like most people will have the opportunity to do so. What do you think will stick and what do you think won't stick? I think what we're going to see um, is more engagement by the community to take part in clinical research. I think there's been a huge focus on the importance of healthcare and health research. So I think that's something that we're going to see really increase as we move forward. And as far as operationally, I believe we're going to see this model towards some studies going decentralized or virtual and others being more of a hybrid model. Again, that also helps uh, engage the participants to take part in these studies and allows us to sometimes include participants who aren't necessarily local to our research sites. One thing I wanted to talk about, you know, just talking about trends and things that 
that are sticking is the dietary supplement has really skyrocketed. People especially are seeking immune support. And I know that in late 2020, Amazon began requiring compliance testing. What is the role of Nutrisource in helping those brands? Well, I'll bring you back on for that question. So Nutrisource assists companies, as we referenced earlier, with compliance in general. However, particularly in this case with Amazon.com, we were already heavily engaged with helping with brands that were offside or out of compliance with Amazon.ca or the ones that were already listed to ensure they remain compliant on Amazon.ca, which is the Canadian uh, Amazon outlet, of course. So from that perspective, we'd already been engaged by a number of brands in Canada And that's kind of translated over now to Amazon.com with some of the recent announcements and developments. And ultimately, our role in terms of regulatory support, guidance, and strategic solutions is to ensure that the label is technically compliant. Uh, The claims as made are substantiated, again, within U.S. dietary supplement regulations, and that the appropriate scientific literature and data exists to support those claims. Now, with all the innovation going on, in given areas and how FDA and FTC are watching, companies and brands need to keep in mind that their websites, their social media platforms, them even liking a testimonial, someone using their brands on a social media channel can be construed as an extension of their label or them somehow misleading the consuming public that their product treats, cures, mitigates, prevents, some sort of disease. And so they have to be very careful as a brand with not just the label on pack, but also all of their surrounding collateral material, even things that seem somewhat inadvertent or somewhat um, non-material, non-serious in nature can be misconstrued or interpreted as a, a more aggressive claim than they're otherwise, from the guidance perspective, allowed to do. So from that perspective, they've got to be very, very careful in this area. And when it comes to some of the legacy ingredient categories that have been around for a while, they've sort of reemerged. So I would say vitamin C, vitamin D, there's been a lot of academic research on C and D for decades and it continued on. But I would say that innovation dropped off a bit in those categories because they're well known to consumers, you know, well known to regulators, the dosing's fairly well established the sort of uh, consensus on what claims could be made was well-established globally in most jurisdictions. And then all of a sudden the pandemic comes along and uh, we start seeing papers pop up about the importance of D and C and the role they could potentially play. And from there, all of a sudden this massive wave of innovation occurred. And this is about subsequent launches or repositioning of some SKUs that have been in the market for quite some time. And that's where we would come in and ensure that the technical aspects and the science evidence and support around the messaging, the labeling, the content is on side with, in this case, uh, the U.S. regulatory environment for dietary supplements. And that's as well with, with the Amazon situation. We engage with the brands to ensure that their listing continues, that they aren't inadvertently saying things or doing things that brings them offside or out of compliance, both with U.S. regulatory dietary supplement guidance alongside what Amazon wants to see, and that their testing is done in a way and manner that's consistent with what 
amazon.com wants to see as well. So understanding their test reports, their test results, interpreting the test results and what it means for them, where they get it done, how they get it done, what methods are used, how are they developed, how are they validated, how are they verified, and who provides those tests is all part of this compliance and quality picture or quality assurance picture. And that's what Nutrisource brings to the table for our clientele. In addition to that, just like we did with Whole Foods Market and our iGen, uh, International GMO Evaluation Notification Testing-Based Certification Program for non-GMO positioning for the dietary supplement industry in the U.S. to supply and sell to Whole Foods Market, we're looking to get our CERT programs in marine oils, probiotics, CBD, and iGen as well, non-GMO, as part of the Amazon list of certifications as part of the third-party testing package that Amazon is uh, either approved or is listed there as uh, an appropriate third-party certifier. So you mentioned messaging and label claims a few times there. Is that where brands are making their biggest mistakes? Is that their main question and concern right there? I think so. And, And we find oftentimes that brands have very compliant labels, but then it's on the social media and web content side where they often stretch their label, let's just say. But from a regulatory perspective, they have to understand that that's considered technically part of their label. And in the same way their label scrutinized, so are their, let's say, LinkedIn posts or putting stuff on Instagram, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and they have to look at the totality of what they're putting out to the public, not just what's on the label itself. And now I understand that you are working alongside with Alchemist Labs, an accredited contract testing laboratory to help out with Amazon as well. Is that correct? That's correct. In particular in the botanical space, when we run across clients that need help and support in method development and validation, we've worked with uh, Alan and the team at Alchemist accordingly to close okay. those gaps on behalf of our clients. And likewise, when he runs across clients that have regulatory and strategic solutions and positioning issues... Uh, and how to take those test results and turn them into uh, messaging or positioning or content that's in compliance, they would work with us and facilitate those discussions. So, Will, I know you've got a lot on your plate right now, but I understand there's a new initiative or some new things that you're working on. Absolutely. I mean, there there are a number of new initiatives always for us, some some in the public domain and uh, some that we... uh, announce in due course when they're ready to announce. But um, in terms of some of the stuff that we we can discuss in this type of venue, uh, one of the exciting developments recently, which we've been working on for quite some time, is our cannabis institutional research license with Health Canada. Josh, talk to me about why this is significant and what it all entails. Sure. So the institution-wide license was something that uh, when we looked into the regulations back in 2018, when Health Canada was starting to open it up, we saw that there was an opportunity there to look at doing things a bit differently. Instead of doing your one-off submissions to Health Canada to get that approval, which each and every protocol, which of course delays things, we took opportunity to look at more of a strategic approach there to see if we could do something called the institution-wide license. What that allows for us is to hold a license for a period of time whereby we can submit multiple projects or do multiple projects underneath that license. There are other aspects of the license requiring us to submit to Health Canada's 
therapeutics product directorate for the clinical trials themselves, but now it eliminates this secondary application that we would have had to do after getting that approval from the therapeutics product directorate. Okay. So you guys have got a lot going on. Will had a little bit of a teaser there, so you'll have to keep me uh, updated on what you've got going on there with Nutrisource. You bet. I mean, needless to say that we're, we've really embraced technology. We always have embraced technology, but we're, we have some very specific initiatives that are very exciting, both in clinical trials delivery and some other very uh, intriguing areas of personalized nutrition and related technologies. So those are some of the things that we're working on internally that we'll see the light of day in due course in the not ah. too distant future. So we will definitely keep in touch on these items. Definitely personalized nutrition is one of my favorite topics. So do keep in touch. Nutrisources, Will Rowe and Josh Baisley, thank you to you both for coming on the NutriCast. Thank you. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast wherever you get your podcast. You can also head to NutraIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutri-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.